All right. So hello, everyone, and welcome to the AI Stories podcast. I'm Neil Lizer. I'm a data scientist at IWOCA, and I'm your host. So today, we've got Kanwal Batia, who is the CSO of Metalinks. So Kanwal first studied computing at Imperial College London, and after that, she went in academia. She did a PhD at Imperial College London, a postdoc at King's College London, and she worked on medical imaging and AI. After that, she decided to explore the world of startups, and she worked at Physiolytics, where she actually led a team of six data scientists, and then had other experiences, but finally decided to co-found her own startup called Metalinks, which helps companies have visibility on their image data sets. So, Kenwal, I'm really looking forward to digging into our conversation today. How are you? Hi, Neil. Great to be here. I'm, I'm doing well. Thank you. Great. Great to hear that. So, first of all, I kind of want to know, how did you get into AI? How did you get into the field interested in AI, essentially? Um, it was all quite accidental, actually. So this was a long time ago before AI was really all that fashionable. And I I studied engineering as an undergraduate degree and did a project in engineering applied to blood flow, so analyzing blood flow. And from there, I did a, that was quite a computational project. And then I went on to study for a conversion course in computing. And again, this was a time when computing wasn't necessarily a, a normal degree. There was a lot of web development going on, but it wasn't as established a route as, as it is today. And I, I just kept doing projects that I enjoyed, basically, and that ended up being pattern recognition, computer vision, and AI, what we would now call AI. But at the time, AI was a very technical, a very theoretical subject. So when I studied it as a course, it was all about logic programming. So you mentioned, you mentioned at the time, what does at the time mean? Uh, when was this? So this was in around 2000, and AI was not very well established as a practical field. So the subjects I was working on, pattern recognition, uh, computer vision, so the branch of AI focused on on imaging. They were they were fields, but they weren't kind of termed AI. So I was working on on the methods, but without it being in fashion. Okay, I see. And and why did you choose healthcare particularly? You mentioned this was by accident, but then I guess you got interested in healthcare as well. So why healthcare? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of had an interest in it from before. I actually applied to study medicine at university when initially. And uh, this is when I was about 16, 17, when I had to make the application in, in the UK. Um, I actually didn't get into any, any university. And so I changed to engineering, which on reflection was a very good choice because I think medicine would have lacked the uh, creativity that I, I looked for. But it was always something that interested me and in how... I ended up um, exploring how engineering could help with medicine in my undergraduate degree and in my master's and and in my PhD in the end. Oh, that, that's actually quite funny because computing and medicine are very 
different. You know, I would guess if you don't want to do medicine, you would do dentist or something else. Yeah, I mean, I think I was uh, rejected for good reasons. Yeah, I I think the actual day to day work, the the work that I am doing as a computer scientist fits my personality a bit more. Um, I'm still glad that it can be applied to medicine and that there is something meaningful in, in what we're doing. Okay, okay, cool. So you then study computing at Imperial College London. And after that, you decide to do a PhD in medical imaging. Why a PhD? Why not going into industry first? What was your thinking process around this? Yeah, again, this was, this was maybe 2000 and early 2000s. So wasn't as established as it is now to, to do this in industry. But I didn't have a very clear career plan at the time. I continued the PhD with my master's project supervisor. So I did a, I did a project during my master's, which I enjoyed and which was in an area I wanted to continue working in. And so I continued with a PhD with the same supervisor. No, no real career plans. It was more, this is something I like doing and I will continue doing it. Yeah, which is a fair, fair choice, I think. <laughs> I want to focus the conversation on the last part of your academic career on the postdoc at King's College London. Can you briefly explain what you worked on there? What kind of project you did? Yeah, give an intro on the problem that you wanted to solve, essentially. Mm -hmm. So I was working on detecting lung cancer from CT scans. And this was using deep learning. So deep learning had at the time just come into, into use as something that had a lot of promise in, in non-medical fields, in non-medical computer vision. And we were moving to apply it to, to medicine. So it was trying to detect lesions in the lung or nodules in the lung from a CT scan. And some of them can be extremely small and hard to detect when you're looking at it. Sometimes you can see a scan and be told there is a nodule there and you still can't, or at least I don't have the expertise to be able to detect it. CT scans are very, they don't show a lot of contrast. So what is a vessel or an airway can easily be confused for, for a nodule. And what was the process or what is the current process without algorithm? How does it work and why would your algorithm be useful for this? So... Some of these nodules can be very small and they can resemble other structures in the lung. So normally a radiologist would have to look through these scans. So somebody who has extensive experience in, in diagnosing for nodules and for cancer. And they would be looking at all the scans every day. That's day in, day out. That is their, their job to look through these scans and see if there's anything wrong with them. Um, that can be quite fatiguing if all you're doing through the day is looking at a scan. And because some of these nodules are so small, it can be quite difficult to, or can be quite easy to miss them. So the hope is to, to help a radiologist by at least being able to identify that something is wrong in the scan. 
moving on from that, if you can not only identify it, but measure the size and automatically determine the size of the, the nodule, you can also help track the progression of disease. Okay. And so if I want to dig a bit further into the problem, you mentioned you had this data set of disease, not disease, I guess. And then what was your project about training an algorithm to kind of detect whether a disease was in the image or not? Yep. So we had a a data set of of images which were labeled as not only having disease or not having disease, but also with the location of the nodule. So specifically where and what the size of the nodule was. And from there, we train um, algorithms to to segment the outline of the the nodule, but only the nodule. Okay, so it's like a segmentation task where you try to, and if there isn't any nodule, I guess the algorithm should just tell you this, right? Yeah. Or, so if the the segmentation is is zero pixels, if um, if there's no nodule. Okay. Cool. And. I want to dig a bit deeper into the model without going too much into details. Did you just, I know in computer vision, you can usually just use a pre-trained model and it's already trained for you. You just use the model for your problem and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So did you, what did you do essentially? Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the problems in medical imaging in particular is that well, at least the modality we were using, which is CT, doesn't look like ordinary images. So a lot of the pre-trained networks have been pre-trained on like normal images from the web. And so photographs and color images of people and objects. And a CT scan of the lung looks very different. It doesn't have the same features as normal images. So it's not easy to use a a pre-trained network. So I was training the model from scratch. Uh, We didn't have a huge amount of data. We had about 800 scans. That's Um, quite small, actually. mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons to use segmentation, actually, uh, rather than classification, because you can create a lot of patches within one image of things that are not nodules. So your training data is your 800 nodules. We had 800 nodules in the training set, no no normal subjects, but a lot of areas of the images which did not have nodules. So we could basically enlarge our training data set by taking patches of the image. Oh, so you enlarged the data sets to a bigger sample size, I guess, because... 800 seems quite small for a deep learning algorithm. Is that right? Yeah. So instead of one patient scan being one sample for our deep learning model, one patient scan can be split up into, I don't know, 16 patches. And a nodule may only be present in like one of those patches. So that would mean we have 16 for every one patient scan, we have 16 images, one disease and 15 non-disease. And therefore we could multiply our training data set by 16. 
Okay, okay, makes sense. And so what was the outcome then of your project? I mean, you train your model, you get some kind of accuracy, but what does this mean? Can your algorithm be used in the future? Yeah, what was the outcome of this research? So this was an academic project and it took just over a year until I, I left. The outcome, as many academic projects, was to get a grant to continue that project. So that was successful and it it led to the university being awarded a grant to keep on researching this area. So to keep improving your work essentially to one day maybe develop this algorithm into hospitals or whatever. Is that right? I guess that's the hope, yeah. Very cool. It, it hasn't been done yet, right? Not to my knowledge. Okay, okay. And also one thing that I'm just wondering, which is, so you mentioned you need to train this model and get some kind of accuracy, but in medical imaging, we don't just want to get a model, we maybe also want to explain what the model does. So for example, if there isn't any if there isn't any disease, the model should maybe explain why he thinks there isn't any disease because you really don't want to miss this. Is that something you also worked on? Yeah, I mean that's one of the advantages of segmentation is that you you actually it's not just disease or non-disease, you get the location and the size of what you are looking for. But it's true that if something isn't there, it's hard to tell what the reasons are for that. And I think this is something that is ongoing, that we need to, to be better in terms of algorithm transparency and also in terms of confidence. So it's good to say that there is disease and there was not disease, but sometimes you may not be too sure. I mean, there are some in, there are some pathologies that are extremely obvious, and you know it's it's clear that there is disease, and then some where you're saying there's disease, but you're, the model isn't really sure. And trying to have a bit more granularity in terms of confidence of a prediction is something that I think would also be quite useful. Yeah, obviously we want the model to be explainable. If one day we want them to maybe replace radiologists like actually yeah do you think they would replace radiologists one day or do you think they will work together with radiologists who work with ai what's what's your thinking on that yeah i think it's going to be much more a side-by-side -side thing i mean i i think i saw some you know we're short of radiologists that's one of the the problems mm -hmm. in in healthcare in the uk at least i think there was some i saw some statistic that said I think 45% of cancers are only diagnosed at a very late stage because we, we lack scanners and radiologists. So I see AI as helping radiologists to do their job more efficiently and, um, and faster and to get more patients diagnosed early on. I think we're a very long way off from AI replacing radiologists. But I also think that It can offer, I mean, it can offer a lot of more helpful tools. For instance, in in, in lung cancer, we I was looking at 
looking at the size because when I was working on segmentation, I was looking at the size of tumors. And that's something they do, and they do it in a very almost ad hoc way in terms of measuring the size across time points, mainly because they don't have the tools to do anything else. So having some automatic method of segmentation can be, especially in 3D, can be really helpful for them to do their job that they're already doing. I think they should be working side by side for a long time yet. Do you think they are ready, like radiologists are ready to work side by side with AI? Because it might just be my opinion, but I feel like in healthcare, people usually think, oh, I know I'm a specialist. I know this better than anyone. And an algorithm is not going to tell me whether I'm right or wrong. I don't know if you experienced this or you have an opinion on that. What, what do you think? Do you think they are ready? I mean, I think, you know, it depends how it is implemented. So you can implement AI as being like a double check. So you can, you can review with AI or alternatively screen with AI and then send more difficult cases, prioritize cases in a different way than you would without. So the more urgent cases get put to the top of a radiologist's workflow. Or you can review their work after, after they have done a diagnosis and flag up anything that doesn't match. So I think there are ways to work together without threatening the autonomy of, of a radiologist. I think there are some concerns on a more practical level in terms of do we have the systems in place to, to implement these? What I found quite surprising was, again, this was a few years ago, so, and I think particularly during COVID, things have, uh, have advanced. But I was sitting next to a radiologist and going through their standard, standard workflow, and he was tracking the progression of tumors in his patients by looking at the scans on a screen. And he was tracking them by basically having a person sitting next to him with a, with a laptop and an Excel sheet identifying where the tumor was in terms of quadrants of the lung. So not very specific, just saying this is the top left or the top right. And his indenting next to him was entering that into an Excel spreadsheet. So I think there are systems that need to be improved as well as, as, well as affecting change in terms of how somebody operates. I hope that's got better, particularly because of COVID. I think more more hospital records are going to be stored in a in a more accessible way but you know sometimes you're working on really complex algorithms and you think well actually what we need to do is just not you know work on the much more basic it infrastructure yeah that's that's an interesting point i i agree with you looking at the big picture sometimes you just focus on increasing the accuracy of your model But yeah, always good to look at the big picture as well. All right, so you do your research while you go into academia, you do your postdoc, you work on this lung cancer detection, but then you decide to go into the world of startups. So can you maybe give me more info about why you decide to change and why you want to quit academia, essentially? Yeah, I mean, um, one of the reasons was, as you alluded to earlier, the results of the academic project was that the main result was that 
we got a grant to continue the academic project. And to me, that was kind of, it was nice and it was the goal, if you like, but I really wanted to see how the work I was doing could actually impact the end customer who are clinicians. So I moved to startups because that is really the aim of of a startup to actually get ideas converted to innovation to actually have an impact on on society and on on the customers that you you're trying to serve. Okay, so so move from the research to applying AI to solve real business problems. Yeah, I mean they they're both doing research. They're both still trying to trying to implement AI algorithms, but it's more the goal is your algorithms have to be really robust. So it's not enough to have a nice method. What you need to focus on is does this method work? Okay, okay, I see. And what's visualytics exactly? What did the startup do and what was your role there as well? So the startup was trying to detect eye disease from images of the eye, so from fundus photographs and from what's called OCT images. And my role was a data scientist. So when I joined, um, I joined very early on, I was actually building those algorithms for a couple of application areas. And as time went on, I moved to more managing other people, building those algorithms as the team grew. So in the end, we had a team of six data scientists working on numerous algorithms for different diseases of the eye. And it was more managing managing their work and managing them in relation to what we were trying to achieve in the product. Yeah, I'm going to move to the man- managing side of things soon. But first of all, going on your project and eye disease. So it looks like you're solving numerous problems with disease. So you get an image, you apply an algorithm that segments the image, and then you get some kind of outcome. So I'm wondering what stops you just to use the same algorithm, training it on different data? I mean, I guess there should be something more challenging that maybe I don't pick up. You can't just write, take another data set, train your algorithm, and it's done. The problem is solved. So what are the challenges here? Actually, algorithmically, it's, it is very, very much as you described, taking a, a robust method and just applying it to a different data set. And the challenge is really in the data because if you have, you can always get good results if you have a very, on your limited data set. But now we're trying to build algorithms that work across out of our little research environments. They have mm-hmm. to work in, in the real world. So the challenge is, is making sure you know what's in your data set and you can, your data set contains enough variation of the tasks that you're trying to achieve. So if it's no good, for instance, to oversimplify it, to, to have like, if you want to classify dogs and cats, it's no good to have an accuracy of 99% or your data set contains 99 dogs and one cat. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just about reporting a metric. It's you need to understand that your data set is, is really unbalanced. 
So most of the challenge involves getting your data right, getting the input to the algorithm right, rather than coming up with a new algorithm. Yeah, that's very interesting because I had this conversation already a few times with different guests that when you're in research or when you're doing your PhD or whatever, the goal is to get the best model possible, try to get the best accuracy. But actually in the business world, maybe the most challenging thing is to get the data right. Once you, you have the data right, processed and a clean data set, then it's just a, a matter of trying different models and it's going to work in the end and it doesn't take too long. We have libraries for this. So yeah, the most difficult thing, and I think in healthcare even more because data is limited, is actually to get the data right. Yep, exactly. So nowadays you have models that are being produced, you know, every month by Facebook and Google who have armies of people working on these models. Our models are really very good and they don't require much changing to work well across a range of different domains. If your data is bad, you're never going to have a, a robust algorithm. It's never going to work well. And if you think about how to train a model in terms of, you know, you have these huge models and they require huge data sets to, to work well. We, we talked earlier, 800 is really not enough at all. Mm-hmm. So your data sets may contain hundreds of thousands, millions of images. Understanding what's gone into that data set is is quite challenging but it's really important and so what did you do in your project to get the data right you mentioned we need to get the data right what did you do Uh, you mentioned this idea of having one image and dividing it into 16 or whatever uh, so creating patches but is there something else that you did to try and get this data as clean as possible i would say yeah, it was, it was quite a manual process. So it was really about at every iteration, trying to find out what your errors were, trying to find similar examples in your, we had a lot of unlabeled data, trying to find similar examples of the cases that were not working well to add to your training data. We also had a lot of labeling errors that we needed to fix. So it was very much a an iterative but manual process. It didn't involve any sophisticated algorithms. It was really hunting through your data to to, to find the best examples that would improve your model performance. And, and, And what was the product at the end? Like you mentioned this research on building an algorithm to detect eye disease. Was there an outcome to this project? What happened in the end with what you and your team developed? Mm-hmm. So we had a number of different algorithms for different eye diseases. In the end, the company sold the IP to, to various clients. One of the more interesting examples is that one of the algorithms for, or one of the products for detecting diabetic retinopathy, so it's an eye disease that is very common among diabetics, that algorithm and, and interface is now used by the Flying Eye Hospital. So it's a company called a charity called Orbis. They provide eye care services to low-income countries, and they literally have a hospital in an aeroplane. They fly to to various countries in Africa, for instance, uh, providing eye eye care services. So that's now being used by them. 
Very cool. So the company is using your algorithm to detect whether some patients have an eye disease or not. Yeah, so I don't know exactly how it's um, mm-hmm. at what stage it's being used, but um, yeah, visually scale the algorithms to to Orbis to to use. So I guess in the end we can say the pro- project was kind of a success, right? You were leading a team of six people. What did you do to get the most out of this team and make sure that the project will have the best outcome as possible? The first thing that you you quickly learn is that it's very hard to do your own, to do deep research on your own as your team grows and that managing the team is more, means you are more productive as a team than trying to persist on your own research and letting everyone else just independently go ahead with their own. The most important thing is allowing everyone to to talk and communicate with each other and share ideas. And that really means that you learn from each other's experiences. So everyone's working on their own model. They all have they all are running different experiments and they they see what works and what doesn't work. And sharing that information is really important. Doesn't happen organically. So it's useful to put in processes to facilitate that. And so yeah, it's really about making sure the people in your team are working as well as they can rather than pushing your own ideas onto them. And you also mentioned something quite interesting that before that you were actually doing research on your own and then you moved to, well, leading a team essentially. So I guess this should have been quite a different experience from you working on your own VS, leading a team. What are the advice that you wish you knew before you started this or that you learned during your journey? I, I spent a lot of time trying to to learn about management. Was definitely, I think there's a kind of expectation that people should just know how to manage other people and to manage teams. But because we grew quite quickly, I felt that I needed to actually take some time and and learn from people who had done it and learn from accepted theory, if you like. I think everyone should understand that it's not innate, that it's something you have to work towards. So as as much as you have to learn about algorithms, you also have to learn about management. And there should be, I don't think anyone should expect to be able to do it right away. And so what one or two things that you kind of learned on management that could be interesting a lot of the things are very they're common sense in a way so things like trusting people and things like allowing communication between people so they're common sense but they need some kind of discipline to implement so making sure in meetings that you are you know getting everybody to talk for instance or making sure there's a way to enforce transparency and accountability across everyone in the team. Um, So I think it's a lot about discipline. Can you keep doing this on a regular basis? Can you keep people talking? Can you ensure that when something goes wrong, people feel very comfortable in raising those problems? So I think it's more about the actual 
concepts are common sense, but they require some discipline to to implement. Yeah. Okay. I I see what you you mean. I think I understand. It's kind of something when we tell you you need to make sure everyone speaks. You say, oh yes, of course, uh, I need to do that. But if you don't know it or no one tells you this, then you're not going to be a good manager because you're not going to do it because you don't know about it. So by reading more, learning more, and also, I guess, experience, you can essentially improve your skills and get used to those common sense things. Is, is that also what you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. get used to, to putting them into practice. You know, with a lot of things you can, with doing your own research, you can learn by trial and error. When it comes to managing people, you really don't want to do that. You want to make as few hours mm-hmm. as possible because it affects other people and it affects how people enjoy their job and and human relationships. And you don't want to make too many hours. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point, actually. That's true. Another thing, just before talking about your startup, Metalinks, is related to this project, you worked with six, or you were a team of six data scientists. So I'm guessing you have experience on what are good practices for a data scientist. So how would you define a good data scientist based on your experience? A couple of things, really. The first thing is is having a, a deep interest in the data. So a lot of people, especially if they've just come out of university where they've had a very technical education on machine learning, uh, they come into work expecting to work on models and wanting to work on models. And most of the work is on data. So good data scientists really care about their data. Uh, The second thing is being really comfortable with experimenting, with getting things wrong, trying things out and learning from from the information you get out of that. It's very hard to think about the whole process in advance. You have to keep getting feedback and you have to kind of make lots of little mistakes to get to to make progress. And so after Visualytics and your experience there, you have some other experiences in other startups. And then at one point, you decide to build your own startup. Can you also give me some details on what was your thinking process there? Why creating your own startup? And also, why not in healthcare? Since you've been in healthcare for so long, why doing something different? Yeah, so I mean, I'd spent I'd spent a lot of time building my own algorithms and doing research and then at Visualytics um, leading teams. So I felt I had enough experience to then start on my own. But then I was quite confident about having enough just to get going and to make it work. As to why not healthcare, I find it, I think it's very difficult to build a startup in healthcare for a number of reasons. One is data. So unless you have access to data, which is quite difficult to get, and it should be, it should be difficult to get patient data, you will struggle as an AI startup. The second thing is healthcare has a lot of regulation. So any algorithm you build can't be used unless it clears regulation. And that impacts the way you can develop your work. So one thing that's quite useful when you're building a startup is to be able to get regular feedback and to iterate and develop your products and your algorithms, improving constantly. If you need to get regulation, 
basically have to complete the product and then take it to market. And once you once you get to that stage, you can't get feedback or you can't act on feedback very easily because you have to go through the regulatory process again. So it's quite hard to build a, a nimble startup in healthcare if you don't already have a background with a lot of data and a lot of support from from clinical clinical sites. I see. So so what is MetaLinks doing then? It's not in healthcare, but it's still related to AI. Yeah, what is the company doing? It was actually kind of conceived based on a lot of the problems that I had at Visualytics and that we talked about earlier as well, which are the problems with dealing with data. And I mentioned that it was a very manual process for me to find errors, try and find examples of new data that would improve the model to account for those errors. And the the platform we're building at the moment is is meant to simplify that process. So we're building tools to give you ways to structure your image data sets and ways to easily identify where your errors are, what your biases are, and what data you need to improve your model or to improve the performance of your model. So I listened to a conference that you gave at UCL like a year ago, I think, something like that. MetaLinks was more a computer vision startup for sports ads. So why did you change and make this pivot to sports ads company to visualize data? When I initially started on the, the startup journey, I didn't have a very clear idea of what I wanted to do. I I felt that healthcare was too challenging for me to start on my own. I had an interest in sports. And I went through a company generator, it's called Antler, that gave you time to explore different ideas and gave you some investment to, to be able to start from scratch, essentially. And I do think computer vision has a role to play in sports, which is there's a lot of visual data and there's a lot of information that can be extracted. And I'm still hopeful that we'll see some nice startups being built and some nice new applications in that area. For me and for, for my team, it we felt in the end that we didn't have the background to really affect change in this area. So um, I don't have a sports background. And once you start looking into an area, you find you understand what the challenges are. So one of the big challenges in sports is rights to footage. So if you are if you have a video of a sports event and you're trying to find some way to monetize that through AI or whatever, who should get money? Should it be the player who you're filming or should it be the club or the league or should it be the broadcaster? And they're very complex rights issues in sports. That's just, this is one of the challenges. And on top of the other challenges, getting something accepted by the industry. So we didn't feel it was really the right, we were the right fit for that industry. The other challenge for us was that this was last March when we started this. And uh, two weeks after we started the, the Antler program, we went into lockdown and all sports stopped. And so sports broadcasters and rights holders 
were very interested in anything that could they could monetize immediately, but not so much in long-term planning. So it was both a challenging industry for us and also a challenging time. Yeah, that makes sense. Obviously, during COVID, it gets even more difficult. So what is, can we dig a bit deeper into MetaLinks? You mentioned giving visibility out of image data sets. So we kind of touch again this data-centric AI, right? Where data is more important than the model. Do you have more details on this? For example, what would a company do when they join your platform? Yeah, so the first thing is we're we're looking, our first clients should be companies that have some computer vision experience. So they are like me at Visualytics. They're, they know about computer vision. They know how to train models, but they're, they're having frustrations with handling their data and having to go through painful processes to, to get the best data. We'd give them a platform where they could upload their model and results and um, link to their data. And we would show them visually on where the errors are, where whether the distributions are biased or or not, trends in their data set, uh, distributions of your train and test data. So we'd show them all the numerical information that they need to make decisions and also give them the ability to find similar images in unlabeled data. And that will speed up their model development process. So they should be able to build, first of all, more robust models and also do so more quickly. Okay, so essentially making sure they have the best data possible, the best understanding of their data so that they can yeah, train a model easily to solve their problem. Yeah, our first product is is mostly on the data data management and data transparency itself rather than on the modeling. And first you started your career in healthcare and then you moved to, well, AI for sports and now kind of more into the data-centric AI field. So you kind of went cross-domain. You still focused a lot of your career in healthcare, but changed domain in the end. So I want to have your view Do you think a data scientist should stay in a single domain, become an expert, or is it better to go cross domain and switch and see different things, essentially? Um, I mean, I wouldn't say one is is better than the other. I think there is something about being very deep into one topic. You, You get, it's very easy to have a superficial view on a lot of different applications. So, if you're just spending a very short amount of time on each application, you may you may be doing the same thing essentially. You may just be scratching the surface and not really understanding the challenges properly. Going deep into one area allows you to to work on different challenges. Um, it's also quite interesting to switch application areas because you can see how how you would bring something that could be normal in in say healthcare to an application area that is like sports, which hasn't really looked into that. So going across different application areas is really interesting because you can see what people have developed in in that vertical that can be interesting in another one. So I wouldn't say that one is better than the other, but 
there are really good things about both methods. So maybe a trade-off, like going deep into a bit like what you, you've done, going deep into one area, but still looking at what's happening in other domains just to have a view, have a feeling of different problems. Yeah, go out of your kind of little world and comfort zone and try different problems where they apply the same algorithms, but to with different challenges, regulations, data issues. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's also worth doing, even if you are focused on one area. And very often you can find interesting concepts just by reading about what's going on in a different area. A lot of my work on healthcare was influenced by work that was going on in other computer vision application areas. So completely agree with what you said. Even if you are focused on one area, you should be trying to get as much information from different domains as possible. Cool. And yeah, let's just finish this episode with one advice for data scientists. Focus on the data and uh, clues in the name, really. It's, if you're a data scientist, you should care a lot about the data. It's very fashionable to be looking at models and building new architectures, and it's fun as well. But ultimately, it is a the quality of your methods depends on the quality of your data. Well, thanks so much for this. It was great to have you. Yeah, have a good evening and hope to see you soon. Pleasure. Thank you, Neil.